Hello everybody, welcome back to the Trauma of Abuse podcast. Um, I've just had a really enjoyable morning. I've got some fresh air. I got out for a walk in these nice autumnal weather that we've got at the moment when I'm recording this. So um, last podcast I spoke to you about how I've set up a Facebook page now. Um, so it's also got the same name and logo as the Trauma of Abuse podcast that you're listening to today, um, which you've hopefully found on one of your platforms, of which there are multiple um, ones that you can choose from that's to suit yourself. Um, also, um, please like and subscribe if you can so that you don't miss an episode. And um, today I was looking, um, scrolling through um, some information on my lunch break and I just came across um, something from an organisation called Movement of Mothers, which is quite a good um, organisation. And they quoted some um, passages which I found quite interesting. So I came across, what linked on from that was I came across this journal um, from UCLA um, Women's Law Journal. And I thought I'd just read it out to you. It's um its publication um was in twenty seventeen. Um so this is from it's entitled Um How Domestic Um Violence Batterers Use Custody Proceedings in Family Courts to Abuse Victims and How Courts Can Put a Stop to It. So um I just thought I'd read it out to you. I'm gonna post this on uh the Facebook page for you to also read. Um, becoming increasingly aware that um, lots of people are, you know, they have a preference for whether they like to listen or whether they like to read their own material. Some people find um, reading a little bit tricky, especially when they can't concentrate on things. Sometimes it's um, documents that they can't read that I'm helping them to figure out what the meaning is um, because of the wording or the particular people who are mentioned in them. It's very re-traumatising for them. But also um, their concentration levels because of what they've been through and what they're going through. Um, they're finding it hard to actually look at paper and absorb information. So sometimes it's a little bit easier for them to do it on a listening, on a podcast basis or on an audio book basis. So I'm going to give both options today. So I thought I'd just read it out for you. I thought it was a really interesting um, little journal here. Um, so the introduction says domestic violence batterers are master manipulators who find creative ways to abuse their victims, even after the relationship ends. Domestic violence is defined as a pattern of behaviour in a relationship by which the batterer attempts to control his victim through a variety of tactics. Batterer's tactics are more than physical violence and induce a per- it says here, a penumbra of threats and actions to induce fear, humiliation, social isolation and resource deprivation. These tactics can include psychological and emotional abuse, destruction of property and harming of pets, forcing victims into isolation, creating economic, economic abuse and enforcing rigid expectations of gender roles. All of these tactics have one purpose controlling the victim. Batterers are often very angry when victims end relationships and the victim leaves. She exercises her autonomy and escapes the batterer's hold. Many batterers react violently to this. So, of course, the word batterers um, tends to be a rather um, American term. We might say domestic abusers um, in the UK, um, but it's the same same meaning. It goes on to say victims report increased and more severe violence after separation, referred to as separation assault. In one study, 35% of victims reported more severe violence after separation. Some batterers even kill their victims after separation. A victim's risk of being killed by their batterer increases sixfold when she leaves her batterer. After a victim leaves her batterer's spouse and seeks to end the marriage, The batterer often does not willingly relinquish control over her. Instead, he takes advantage of the divorce and custody process as an avenue to continue his abuse. This paper will focus on the ways in which batterers take advantage of custody proceedings in family court to continue to abuse their victims. The batterer's use of coercion during the custody process can take many forms. It can include demanding custody simply for the sake of staying involved in the victim's life, 
forcing the victim to return to court dozens of times to prolong contact. Using court-maintained visitation or custody as an opportunity to commit physical violence against the victim. Intimidating the victim into conceding joint custody during coercive mediation sessions and refusing to pay child support to force the victim back into court. This paper will address the many ways that the batterers use in family court system to perpetuate abuse against their victims and present most family courts are unprepared to address batterers' attempts to use the court and the legal system as a tool of abuse. This paper will offer recommendations for how family courts can stop batterers from manipulating the courts as a site of abuse. So this is something that many people have raised both in the UK and America and worldwide, um, but particularly in the UK and America. And it was something that was raised by my own local um, government safety department who wrote back to my MP um, when I raised concerns with her about the issues of domestic violence locally um, and have been working closely with my MP who is Margaret Greenwood um, and the local safety team, safety unit team here, um, not every area has one I don't think, um, but basically they are in charge of the IDFAs which are the Independent Domestic Violence Advocates um, and they also offer a telephone service um, where a local telephone service where people can ring up and, and seek family safety advice as well. Um, so basically it's acknowledged by many charities, women's charities and domestic violence charities and these particular individuals I've mentioned above um, in the safety unit that um, by not only pursuing the victim after they have left um, or, or managed to escape um, this domestic violence under one roof, that there are many ways and methods in which they pursue them. It may be stalking, it may be harassment, it may be financial, it may be in many different ways. And um, just use, misusing the legal process is one of the areas that has been recognised by many people um, as one of these means of getting or gaining contact with um, the victim once once the victim has escaped physically. Um, it's a way of getting them in the same building, um, which can be very frightening. I hear this a lot from women, and I've experienced it myself. Um, being trapped in a building can have short-term and long-term effects um, on the victim and their way of life, um, and you, you don't feel very safe, um, etc. Um, I've heard of women being bullied by professionals and just the thought of being in the same building, sometimes multi-storey buildings as well, so you can be trapped on another floor, so you're not necessarily even on the ground floor where you can get out quickly, you have to wait for a lift or you have to go down several flights of stairs or you're sort of trapped in a waiting area, um, and this is commonplace, or there are little side rooms, or there may be a main congregation area, or even if you're in a separate wait waiting area, people um, tend to enter a sort of waiting to go into court area where, um, outside of the courtroom itself, where um, they have to come into visual contact and be in the same room and presence as their abuser and their representatives, etc., or sit in the same courtroom. And as we know in family proceedings, the courtrooms are not where the accused is, you know, in a box somewhere out the way, or people are sort of distant in a gallery or you know, in a witness box where they might be taken in, in, in and out in a separate entrance. These are areas which are um, small rooms, often with a table. The table may be in the middle of them, so they have to face opposite their um, abuser, or they may even be lined up sideways. Um, and we've had, um, we can't comment on what goes on inside the court, um, but we can give a little description of the layout um, on scale um, just to demonstrate that there isn't a lot of space between you and the abuser going in and out of the room for example you could find your abuser going through the same doorway at the same time as you or their representatives um, which can all be very intimidating you could find yourself going to the same loo um, and bathroom um, and you could you know you could find yourself as I say checking in parking in the same car park nearby um, and and it's very, very much um, 
a way of trying to stalk and induce fear and intimidation um, in the victims. So back to this article. Sorry, I should have given the name. Um, this is um, this is by Emmeline Campbell, um, and you can find this on online. Um, and I'm going to post it on the Facebook page, the Trauma of Abuse podcast Facebook page. So it's taking the context of abuse, victim and batterer psychology. In order to understand the family court system results in unfair outcomes for victims, it is necessary first to understand the psychological profiles of victims and abusers. So this is very useful, this journal. It talks about um, a victim psychology. So abuse can make people react in unpredictable ways. Many domestic abuse survivors may present as angry, distrustful and suspicious with all professionals related to court proceedings. And it cites um, various references here as well. So um, Barry Goldstein is one of them that I recognise. Um, you may want to look these up. As I say, you can go back and, and, and check this out. Um, the response is a normal reaction to the trauma of abuse. But many judges expect the victims to appear victimised or helpless. And when the victims do not appear helpless but seem angry, the court may draw adverse inf inferences about these behaviours and assume that the victim is purposely purposefully acting uncooperative or difficult. Based on these assumptions, judges may be sympathetic to the abuser and more readily believe his claims. Battered women may also exhibit psychological symptoms that confuse judges. Many battered women suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, which can lead them to display a strange lack of effect when discussing the violence or to giggle inappropriately. Trauma can also um, affect victims' memories, leading them to have difficulty articulating events in chronological order. Courts may misinterpret these behaviours as a sign that the victim is lying or not credible. So that's very interesting, isn't it? There we've got, um, you know, often the normal reaction of um, a victim to being confronted and asked questions in a, an unnatural <laughs> um, environment um, where their, their thoughts are li can't come across in a chronological order and also um, that they want that you know they're annoyed at what's happened to them they're very right rightfully sort of feel angry even though they are powerless um, but they they want to get across their um, their point um, and they have difficulties in their memories and the trauma affects um so this is often what the, this article is saying that this can often be very misunderstood or assumptions can be made that are actually um ill-informed or misinterpreted as and and can go in the favor of the abuser and then it talks about b the batterer's psychology so on the other hand the domestic abuser's psychology batterers often have a psychological profile that creates um, a positive first impression Batterers may present as charming, charismatic, likeable, reasonable, generous, and even flexible. Batterers can be highly manipulative and carefully crafty and craft their image. Many batterers can be abusive at home, in private, but into the outside world they appear to be caring and devoted family men. When judges encounter batterers in court, they are often swayed by the batterers' accounts of events, which in contrast to the victim's accounts seem reasonable and rational, and thus more credible. Batterers often take advantage of their likeable facade to present false narratives to the court about the abuse. Many batterers are described by their own counsels as skillfully dishonest. Batterers often lie or distort facts about the abuse in court. Batterers, in an effort to dis diminish the d victim's credibility with the court. Other batterers have falsely alleged that victims and mental health have mental health or drug problems. Many batterers have claimed that the victim committed physical abuse against them and shifting the focus away from the victim and forcing the court to untangle the variety of abuse allegations in the case. 
Many batterers deny the abuse. Some counsellors who work with the batterers have noted that their clients give a passionate and eloquent denial of the abuse and the impact of their own conduct on others. Some batterers claim that their victims have manufactured the allegations of abuse in order to gain an advantage in their custody cases. When batterers do admit to committing abuse, they may use tactics to minimise the violence. Batterers may allege that the fights the victim has described also include acts of violence committed by the victim. In other cases, the batterer might admit to minor acts of violence, like shoving in order to make the um, more serious and denied allegations seem less credible. Some batterers may even use their knowledge of the victim's psychology against her. Batterers may claim that the victim's anger and assertiveness in court demonstrate that she is not a real victim and that her abuse allegations are false. Other batterers focus on attacking the victim's emotional state. In custody proceedings, batterers often claim that the victims are too unstable to care for children. Even when in the instability is temporary and is a direct result of the abuse. And I would say probably the the um the situation that they're being put in as well, prolonged questioning, etc. Um and being placed in the same room, I would say on top of that. So that gives you two sort of very um good general profiles um for how um the both the victim and the, the domestic abuser. And um, there's a lot of minimization, there's a lot of um um minimizing the actual um what they know they've done wrong um and the assaults that have taken place and then there's a lot of trying to pass part of that blame onto the victim describing it as a fight or an argument rather than actually you know a man who hit a woman um quite straightforward um trying to sort of cloud the um the allegations with extra allegations so that there becomes this distortion and distraction from the original straightforward allegation and of course um this is more likely to happen um in this sort of proceedings than it is to happen um during criminal proceedings where the focus is on the accused um having done something um but of course that can still happen um there can be this you know trying to make out that the the victim is some somewhere to blame can still happen and also of course this isn't reserved for just judges this article infers that this is what happens within the courtroom but of course these manipulation tactics um, and these false impressions and these assumptions are also made um, with other professionals such as social workers um, and uh, police officers sometimes and um, who are not not as experienced or knowledgeable and they can also work on other professionals um, so this tends to indicate where the counsellors have picked up on um and some counsellors are very good and some psychotherapists and, and people of professionals are very good. But we have um, a manipulation of cross-board before we even get to court sometimes of these, um, you know, misconceptions and assumptions. So it's very interesting. So I should just go on to read the next bit, um, which talks about batterer, see, batterer-victim dynamics. Batterers exert power over victims to undermine the victim's autonomy while increasing their own power. Where the victim is a mother, the batterer tends to challenge her parental authority and tries to create tensions between her and the children. As a result, she may have difficulty controlling the children's behaviour. Custody evaluators may find that the domestic violence victims are not effective parents if they cannot control the children. Evaluators may be persuaded by the father's portrayal of himself as the powerful figure, and the children may behave better in his care due to their fear of him. Children may even request to be placed with the batterer as a result of traumatic bonding. We've heard of the term trauma bonding, um, whether it be between a woman a man or um, a same-sex relationship or um, between a child and adult um, where the um, the confusing um, level of sort of love and pain and suffering and then neglect and then attention in this very abusive fashion um, results in a sort of trauma bond 
um, which is an unhealthy bond. Um, so this talks about how the battery of victim dynamics work out play out with the children which is quite interesting it goes on to say these behaviors often lead custody evaluators to recommend some amount of custody for the batterer so in other words the children are conditioned to be very difficult sometimes with the um the caring victim parent um because they see the um the dominator or the abuser or the batterer in this case um as the sort of strong um person in charge to decide with because why side with the loser why side with the victim you know why side with the nice guy when the bad guy's winning you know and being seen to be all powerful um and also they are under threat whether it be directly or indirectly or in, you know in um inferred um fear induced basically um so it's it's much more complex than people realize it says here that um, batterers may seem more credible than victims based on their psychological profiles. Many judges and evaluators are lacking in-depth knowledge about domestic violence and PTSD, or PTS, however you want to describe it, may um, post-traumatic stress, that is, may um, easily be misled into trusting the, the calm, sincere-sounding accused um, veracity more than the strange or emotional purported victims when a judge may um, when the judge must decide whether the batter or the victim's account of abuse is true the batterer's account may win out because of the perception that he is more credible so it can be described as them um, behaving in a plausible or credible fashion um, I've heard that term used by um, psychologists and, and others as well and um, other academics on it, um, such as this article. And it's it's talking about the, um, the perceived credibility of the calm, rational, you know, psychopath, if you like, um, or th traits of a psychopath type um, individual who's, you know, got control of it. Uh, as opposed to, oh yes, well they seem you know reasonable, don't they? And of course the law goes with the reasonable man. And of course they seem like this, but the reality is that in the home they're terrorising, they're shouting, they're this and, and they're manipulating. And um, the woman, the victim, in this case the woman may may come across as a little bit nervous, anxious, um, not quite so together. And of course then it's like, oh well, you know, maybe this guy's credible and maybe she's not so credible so it turns the truth on its head and back to front um so black becomes white white becomes black and this is you know how the complete switch over happens um and what seems fairly obvious to the victim and to, to, to everybody else becomes turned on its head you know the victim becomes the abuser the abuser becomes the victim in the eyes of those observing um, and this is how explaining how that happens. And this is brilliant education for anybody working with victims um, and abusers. And often you get two sides of the story and everyone goes, yeah, there's two sides of the story. But of course, um, what you get is one victim telling the truth and then you get one abuser not telling the truth or minimising or distorting or giving a false impression of themselves that seems credible as the credible as they use, the word they use here. I've seen plausible being used as well. So, um, you know, it becomes less believable um, in those who are, you know, facing these people for the first time without seeing any sort of other evidence other than an oral um, account firsthand. And also those people working as evaluators in the UK, we have Kafkas or a Kafkas guardian or a child guardian um, or a solicitor's children's solicitor. Um, there's... Um, in America, they have ad litem, don't they? Guardian ad litem, or they have um, in in Ireland they have another one again. So, it's it's basically any sort of evaluation or social worker or anybody who's involved in sort of they only see them for a short time. They're given this false impression, um, which doesn't really play out, um, and can be very easily mis misinterpreted. So, it's really important to um, be aware of that if you are a professional seeing somebody come into school as the nice parent, concerned parent, 
or I mean of course they could be just a nice concerned parent but um, just to be aware that when a victim tells you this has happened to them they could be you know, absolutely telling you the truth, just because this person can present themselves temporarily as credible and just because they're trying to discredit the other person doesn't necessarily mean that that's where the truth lies. Um, and this is how things can be turned around and are being turned around so frequently in favour of the abuser because um, people just can't get their heads around this. Well, what do you mean they've given a child to the abuser and or prevented the, the good parent from, you know... Um, from being with them and things like this and and how can this be happening and then well surely there was a case or surely there's due process or you know and this is explaining quite clearly how this does happen and because I've heard many many stories of this I know this to be true um and this is exactly how it happens so um Unfortunately, um, and this is why victims don't get the support um, and the recognition and the children don't get the protection and the women don't get the protection that they need as well, very sadly. So it's a really big education for all of us. Uh, everybody should know about this. Um, it goes on to say, but unfortunately, many child custody laws are built to favour generous batterers over protective victims. So they go for the, oh, well, I'm just, you know, doing this and the other, uh, you know, and I'm going to court and I just want to be involved over the sort of, well, I need to protect. You would think that they would err on the side of caution and safety, but of course that's not what happens in reality. So that expectation by the victim that I'm just doing the right thing here, I'm trying to protect myself and my child, um, you know, plays out very differently in practice. Um, often, according to the American Bar Association, as of 2008, 32 states included friendly parent presumptions um, as a factor in the analysis of the best interest of the child. Friendly parent presumptions assume that in all child custody cases, the parent who is the most generous in their sharing the child with the other parent would have a greater ability to understand and provide for the child's needs. Some states, including California, have recognised that the friendly parent provisions should not be applied in domestic violence cases. However, this does not fully resolve the problem. For the friendly parent provisions do not apply, the court must first make a finding of domestic violence. If the court believes that the batterer, not the victim, then the domestic violence exception does not kick in and the friendly parent provision still applies. Now, I can tell you that where domestic violence has been proven and accepted, um, this can still go on. But I, this, is an, this is an article to do with the... Um, and often, um, because the information that is found in, in courts is not always related to outside agencies because it's kept confidential and secret... Um, often misinformation is passed on to agencies who should be supporting the victim um, of a false um, result as well and that and misinformation is passed on. So that causes problems when it comes to the victim then re-seeking um, help from agencies and things. They would say, well, there's no domestic violence, she was lying, but actually there is a finding of fact or there is a criminal conviction that hasn't been um, found because of confidentiality that hasn't been disclosed or there's no register. That's why there's a lot of people campaigning at the moment for a serial stalker's register um, or a domestic violence um, perpetrator's register for those um, men who are committing these um, repeated offences um, so that people can check um, and look that up. Uh, not so that people can be vigilantes and, and go around, you know, carrying the law themselves, but so that they can actually say, well, look, this guy's done this before and, you know, you might not want to be in a relationship with them, but also um, that this is accepted, that this has happened um, and that this is a pattern of behaviour. So it says... Um, Unlike California, not all states have recognised that friendly parent provisions should be um, inapplicable in domestic violence cases. Although every state has made domestic violence a factor that courts must consider in custody cases, and at least 24 have presumption that batterers not be given custody, studies show that batterers still win custody cases in states where the friendly parent provision, unless a statute clarifies that it does not apply when there is domestic violence. 
Friendly parent provisions create risks for the children of domestic violence abusers and continue to be applied in many cases nationally. Even when one parent has had a history of perpetrating domestic violence. So these could be, um, you know, criminal convictions or findings in private courts or accepted or admitted abuse. And still, um, it sort of becomes like a secondary rather than the primary consideration, which they're saying is, you know, is uh, creating huge risks. Um, and certainly this is based on the American model, but it's very similar to the British, um, UK um, one and, and others around the, the globe as well. Um, just slightly different wording, really, and slightly different um, people involved um, by name. So one of the things that was brought up by Claire in her interview, if you haven't heard um, the Claire Thrussell interview, I think it was in series one, have a listen to that. It's really interesting um, and it gives um, quite an upsetting account, but um, quite, a, a, you know, an articulated um, account of basically what um, the crazy notions are. There's a great list here. Um, in this article in section E um, about how batterers exploit victim psychology, parental alienation. Batterers can be a, um, adept at using the psychology of victims against them by arguing that the victim has turned the children against the batterer. A widely discredited theory known as parental alienation has been used by batterers to claim that the victim manipulated the children into disliking the batterer. In parental alienation, and parent, a parent ostensibly creates misrepresentations of the other parent in the child's head and their hopes that the child will alienate that other parent. The National Council for Juvenile and Family Court Judges has noted that the scientific community has discredited parental alienation theory and it should not be administered in court. And there's a few references as well. Though parental alienation has been discredited, some courts continue to apply it as a, or reference it. A recent uh, decision in the Connecticut um, notes that, like other jurisdictions, Connecticut has not passed on the issue of whether parental alienation syndrome is a reliable theory. In one case in Louisiana, the court drew at length from a journal article on parental alienation, quoting, the alienated parent typically is a good parent who has no history of physical or emotional abuse of the child. And where there may be some kernel of truth to the child's complaints about the rejected parent, the child's grossly negative views and feelings are significantly distorted and exaggerated reaction. Despite the fact that the parental alienation has been discredited, its legacy lives on in the minds of some judges, it says here. So, um... I've had, um, I've spoken to lawyers, I've had lawyers um, myself who claim to believe in this. I've heard social workers um, and support workers um, try to, um, and coming from children's services departments in the UK, trying to push this theory on me and to discuss it with me. And even one of them told me that she was running conferences on it as well. Um, so there's obviously a little bit of a side um, career whether she was getting paid for those I'm, I couldn't tell you um, and I'm not going to name names but there is um, quite a little um, you know clique of this um, and certainly one of the um, assistants that came out to talk to me had a relative in the legal profession and this this thing of alienation came up again and it's something that was traditionally used um, where there was no other way of defending um, a male abuser against the allegations of child abuse and domestic violence um, other than to try and blame the the truth that were being told by the child on this theory. Um, it's not in the DSM um, and so therefore it's not recognised but yet it still keeps appearing um, and of course it doesn't seem to work the other way around so where women claim it back in defence and are persuaded to do that by various organisations and lawyers and things it, it doesn't have the same effect. Um, so it does seem to be something that was invented in my view um, and I would say, I would summarise primarily to remove children from mothers alleging um, domestic violence and um, abuse of children 
on contact with fathers um, in order for those fathers to get away with what they'd done and the effects on the children. And their negativity towards the mother was reversed round again, just in, in the same way that we described before about how the batter and the victim become reverse, flip, flip-sided over. Um, it's quite frightening, really. And when I discussed um, some of these things that were going on with somebody who was um, an experienced um, member of um, the armed forces, now retired, um, he said it's a military tactic and it's quite an effective one. You need to reverse round, well, actually, they did it to me, I didn't do it to them. Um, and where you have a situation where um, the burden of proof is not quite so great as with a criminal court with evidence and forensics etc and it's just word of mouth it becomes a little bit of a clouded area um and of course then there's all the other factors like you know are the people dealing with it competent do they have enough time do they really listen do they come with their own prejudices and biases etc um as we've talked about before so it says um f here at solutions ruling on domestic violence allegations often proves uniquely challenging for judges judges cannot rely on their gut instincts about whether the victim or the batterer is more credible instead courts must engage in careful fine fact finding to determine if accusations of domestic violence are true courts should consider looking to the following resources for further evidence Testimony from others, family members or friends, service providers, counsellors, police reports, criminal case records, restraining order records, medical records and school records, etc. Now, there's a plethora of problems with all of those um, and whether they're actually looked into properly um, and the documentation side of it, which I'm sure I have touched on, but I'll touch on again in another podcast. Um, So this is very relevant. Um, I think this is a brilliant... um, is it a journal? I think it's a journal. Yeah, it's a brilliant journal here um, that's been written and I'm going to post it on the Facebook page. It goes on to talk about lots of the relevant factors, actually. Um, and it's a great education to anybody who hasn't been into the system or is perhaps being targeted by an abuser, dragged into this system and can't escape it, or is in the middle of it, or any of those professionals working with victims um, or friends and family how to support them, etc. So to recognise that what they're saying is going on is actually going on and to understand, well, well, why is this happening? You know, why is this child going? Why aren't they listening to you? You know, there must be a reason. This is These are the reasons. So um, it says here that um, mediation is often praised. And I think I have touched on this. I have touched on this a couple of times in my previous podcast. So if you go back and listen um, about this, this mediation... Um, mediation is often praised as a less adversarial way to handle divorce and custody cases. Um, and here are the problems. In mediation, an impartial third party and mediator facilitates the resolution of divorce and custody disputes to reach agreement, an agreement between the parties. Supporters of the mediation say that it is less costly, more efficient and produces better outcomes than traditional custody litigation. It goes on to say, however, mediation has come under significant criticism in cases of domestic violence. Mediation puts victims of domestic violence at a huge disadvantage in custody proceedings. Because of the power imbalance in the batterer-victim relationship, victims often feel disempowered when the batterer is present and unable to voice their needs or the needs of their children during mediation. The National Council on Juvenile and Family Court Judges recommends that judges consider not requiring mediation in cases involving domestic violence where state law allows. And I know that in the UK, you are not required to go to the mandatory mediation prior to going to court um, if there is a domestic violence case. and that you do, although people try and pressurise you into those things, um, you may find that having already um, had your lawyer advise against that and say that that's not necessary and go to court, that they may still be this underlying pushing for mediation. And you may even find that people have a vested interest or a conflict of interest in it when you get there. You may find that, for example, a law firm may have a um, what's called collaborative law um, approach or a mediation firm on a little sideline of their own um, and that they may push for this as an alternative and it all is sold in this very saleable package as the paragraph before has just um, 
just described really um because you know and and the reality is that there's a power imbalance um particularly if the um abuser has seized the children or kidnapped them <laughs> or whatever term you want to use um which does happen later on in proceedings um once they've gained increasing ground um by repeated applications which is another form of abuse um, mediation can be voluntarily, voluntary, sorry, or mandatory, depending on state law. Each state determines whether all custody disputes in the state must be med mediated, or whether there are opt-out provisions, or other exceptions for domestic violence or other reasons. For unfortunately, the majority of states have banned mediation on domestic violence cases. Fortunately, it said. Did I say unfortunately? Fortunately. Um, other states allow victims of domestic violence to opt out of mediation. So the American Bar Association reports that as of 2014, um, only 18 states require domestic violence victims to engage in mediation, with five states leaving it up to the discretion of the court without allowing them to actually opt out. So it is still happening. Um, unfortunately, Cal and this is, you know, if we go back to the beginning of this journal, talking about how does the abuser, upon leaving, escaping, um, getting that courage to get out of there, how do they bring you back in the room with them? Well, this is one of the ways that they're doing it in this very cruel way, and how this is not being recognised, and that the system really, in my view, should be preventing this on, the, you know, across the board um nobody should be forced into a room with their abuser whether it's at social services meetings child protection meetings mediation services um any other form of you know anything a court buildings blah blah, blah etc police stations you know it shouldn't be happening it just it's just not necessary and it's um it's really harmful really harmful to the victim and the mother often who is the victim is the the parent who then has to go home to the child um, feeling the effects of this and of course the impact on the child is that the mother is being abused therefore um, you know and also the the impact of I will see your mother today I will you know these things get back to the child via the abusive father often um, in in those cases as well so I'm not going to read um, the whole journal out but it is really interesting um, I'm just going to pick out some little sections. Oh, here we are. So section three of this particular area says, um, mediators are unequipped to handle domestic violence cases. Mediators are frequently not well trained on domestic violence issues, and they are typically not equipped to address the unique needs of domestic violence victim in mediation. Certification for mediators may require very minimal training on domestic violence. And there is a reference here um, to where that comes from. In California, mediators must receive only 16 hours of training in their first year of work and subsequently receive an update training for four hours per year. Now, I would say in the UK, that's probably down to less than that. Um, in fact, some of the mediators that were suggested... Um, I've heard suggested that people actually have no domestic violence training whatsoever. They have just somebody who's been through a divorce and done a mediation training course. Um, in others, they claim to have domestic violence training, but it may be like a two-day course or a one-day course um, in which they, they can't possibly have the be equipped with the, the ability to do it. Um, and of course, we don't know, we, we never get um, certification or verification or paperwork to say where they've been trained and who by and what sort of actual training they've had in this as well. So it says here, may, uh, mediators may be um, unable to properly screen for domestic violence and may overlook many cases in which domestic violence is present. In the study of mediation reports in San Diego, researchers found that the mediator only accounted for domestic violence in 43.1% of cases, where the screening form filled out by the client had an explicit domestic violence allegation. Even in cases where a temporary restraining order had been issued and was documented in the screening form, the mediator addressed domestic violence in the mediation report only 49.4% of the time. 
Other studies have similarly found that mediators are frequently unable to identify cases involving domestic violence. So they're not even able to actually identify it's there when it's faced in front of them um, and evidenced, let alone deal with it effectively, is what they're saying. Some mediators are even hostile to claims of domestic violence, and this is one of the things that frightens me the most. In one study, researchers found that women who informed custody mediators that they were victims of domestic violence often received less favourable custody awards. Mediators may suspect that women who, are report, who report domestic violence are manufacturing the allegations for custody purposes and they may punish women who make allegations of domestic violence based on this belief, one of the most dangerous beliefs out there, I believe. Um, and the thing is that with the prevalence of domestic violence being reported officially and unofficially through charities, through official bodies like the police, through um, social services, etc., and through courts, and the data that's been gathered on the sheer numbers of domestic violence incidents, um, whether they be, um, you know, physical ones or other forms of controlling behaviour and, and stalking, all forms of domestic violence are at a huge high level and went up sort of like 30 or percent plus um, during lockdown as well. And this is not something that's um, just a tiny percentage of people and the rest are making up. This is something that is highly likely to be the cause of people coming to court and abusers coming to court to target their victims. It's not something that's just a afterthought. It's it's actually the the the, the root cause of this, you know, the fact that the mediation isn't going to work and all the rest of it and that the court proceedings have had to take place because people want an official body to deal with the abuser or the batterer, as it says in this case. So anyway so i think that's um probably enough for today i'm going to post this um brilliant journal um and i say it's quite current it's it's a recent one um and it's broken down into really manageable sections so i hope that's been really useful to people and it's drawn together perhaps some of the ideas the concepts the points that i've made and it gives a little bit more in depth into not just what's it been like for victims living with a domestic abuser, how has it cropped up on them, how have they escaped, but what is the ongoing abuse and the complex nature of that once they leave and once they escape physically, um, it's not just the man banging on the door or trying to get hold of the kids, it's this very um, bigger picture of systemic failures um, across the board and of course here it's specifically relating to mediators or to judges, I would go as far as to say it's you know, it flows across all professions. Um, but this this is very, very good at um, pinpointing the problems. So whether you're listening to this on the basis of being a victim yourself and experiencing these things, um, or a friend of somebody who's going through it and not quite understanding what's happening and being kept out of proceedings, or a relative, or as a child who's grown up wondering what's been going on, why... You know, if I've been sensitive for my dad when my mum did nothing wrong, um, or whether you are listening to it um, now as a professional, trying to gain some insight, trying to find out what's really going on and that you're opening your mind to that. Um, or maybe you have gone on a course considering doing counselling or mediation, or you've become a, you know, you're becoming a social worker, or you've been working in a profession, you've wondered why, you know... Um, women are behaving in a certain way or men behaving a certain way and maybe you can't see the aggression in this man, you think he seems like a reasonable guy. Have a little read of this journal, have a little listen to what I've said today on this podcast, um, maybe even go back and listen again and it'll help you to understand. Um, it mentions the name of Barry God's, um, Goldstein here and I think that that's one of the authors as well as Lundy Bancroft who gives a real insight into these things um i think it's cited in here um there's some books in here that are yeah so go on the facebook page the trauma abuse podcast facebook page and you will see all the references to all the material in there i say it is an american journal based on american states um but it, it's very applicable um across the world in this particular area and system there will be little little de discrepancies um but it, for anybody who's been through it they will see the the clear <laughs> clear pattern here um of behavior 
So, um, yeah, brilliant, brilliant insight. So, um, I'm just really enjoying the autumn time at the moment and I just, um, being able to get out for an early walk this morning, it was pretty cold this morning here actually in the UK and, um, but as the sun came out, um, and I got moving, it was really nice. And, um, so I've been able to enjoy all the beautiful views. Um, we've actually got a view, um, not too far from here from the sea as well. So that was, that was nice. And, um, and I found something really cute and really quaint. Um, and it was, I was just walking past a little bench by, um, a little bus stop in the, in the village on my way back to my road. And there was a little bench and it had a little knitted thing on the floor with a note. And I thought, oh, somebody's dropped something there. I'll pick it up, you know. And it must have been on the bench. And it was a little knitted, um, what's called a worry worm, which I've not heard of before. And somebody taken the time. And I thought, oh gosh, somebody's dropped this. But I realised somebody left it deliberately for somebody to find. A little bit like people are painting rocks and supportive messages. I know there's a lady in Norfolk who writes, um, who paints rocks with um, rocks against family court, things like that. And I know there's some little ones that children have done of little animals and things like that. And they've left them around for people to find. And... Um, but this was a knitted um, little sort of like caterpillar type worm in um, blue and green. I had a little note on it, which was really sweet. Um, and it said, if you find this, this worry worm, um, please take it home with you. Look after it, you know, if you want to. And um, this, you know, hold it tight and it will help to get, you know, take your worries away and all this. And I thought, well, what a lovely little thought that it is. Um, and it was a random act of crochet or something um so um I just thought that was really sweet and I thought well you know there is some decent human humanity out there um so if you found this um whole discussion a little bit triggering about um about talking about you know family court and proceedings and ways that abusers use tactics to continue that contact that frightening um contact with you after you've uh, tried to escape um perhaps we can just end on a little bit of a happy note there and say you know isn't it nice to see these little things just restoring a little faith in humanity that there are people out there that care and leave a little nice message behind um rather than these abusers leaving the fearful content behind um and isn't that nice so um, i just thought i'd drop that there at the end <laughs> um as a nice little thought for, for the day um so i hope to to speak to you soon and um hope you'll join me for the next podcast please subscribe if you can and check out the facebook page um which is new the trauma of abuse podcast and um, by me hannah barnard thanks very much take care everybody bye